I'd say, not only evidence-based, but evidence-informed policy uh, is consistently, if not knowingly, oversold. Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode six of the LKM Co. Youth in Education podcast. Today's podcast is um, a bit different from what I've done previously. First of all, we have an external guest. So my guest today is Professor Jeff Whitty, and I'll say a little bit about him shortly. This is an external guest, not part of LKMCO. And secondly, it's going to be a two-parter. Jeff and I had such a wide-ranging discussion that I thought to get it down to one episode would mean that listeners would miss out on some real gems. So I decided to split it up into two parts. So this episode is part one, where we discuss more domestic issues and the next episode, part two, talks about more global things. So Professor Jeff Whitty, he is former president of College of Teachers. He currently has a post in equity and higher education at the University of Newcastle, Australia, and he also has a research professorship in education at Bath Spa University. However, uh, for around a decade, he was the director of the Institute of Education at University of London, um, and that's why where I interviewed him. Prior to that, he's held a number of positions and he started his life as a teacher back in the late 60s, uh, early 70s. Jeff has had a fascinating career, which still continues to this day. The thing that impressed me most about him is how his ideology of social justice and equality has shaped his career in every single step and also how he's been true to that in terms of how he's built his teams and how he's led people and also institutions. I think there's a lesson in there for all of us, whether we agree with his ideology or not. Um, So I thoroughly enjoyed this discussion with Jeff. I know that you will, and you'll also enjoy part two. In this particular episode, we talk about how evidence affects education policy, and we talk about that for successive governments from the kind of 70s onwards uh, up to the present day and then also Jeff raised an interesting point as to whether it should and how practically researchers can expect governments to take notice of their findings. He also makes an argument for the fact that maybe researchers should spend less time trying to persuade governments and actually more time trying to get their research out to the wider public because it's public opinion ultimately that helps to influence politicians. Anyway, enough from me. I really do feel we should get into this episode so you can hear the conversation. As always, let's get geeking. LKM co-believe society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? Okay, Aisha Small, I'm here with Professor Jeff Whitty, sitting in his most excellent cupboard stroke office. Jeff, thank you for having me. You're welcome. It's good to meet you again. 
Um, first thing I want to ask you about is, so you're passionate about sociology of education. As we were talking, it turns out that you're technically not a sociologist. I mean, you weren't, that wasn't your training. So first of all, what does the phrase mean to you? Like, what is the sociology of education? Well, sociology, again, at its basic level, is a study of society and uh, how, how society works. Obviously, the different theories of that. Uh, but sociology of education is focused on uh, understanding how education works uh, internally, but equally how it's related to the social structures within which it's located. So for me, it's really a stance. It's a way of looking at the world. And um, that's derived from what C. Wright Mills, a famous American sociologist uh, in the last century, called exercising the sociological imagination, uh, looking at things in a sociological way uh, and showing how personal experiences of individuals are related to wider social structures. So what drew you to this? Because um, you said your background is uh, as a historian for your undergrad. Um, and then you kind of got in with interesting people who were looking at uh, kind of politics in its wider sense and also economics. So what led you to sociology? Uh, well, it was partly to do with the history I did study at university uh, in that we have one course in the final year called Theories of the Modern State, which introduced us to what, are now called the founding fathers of sociology, um, Marx, Weber, Durkheim, and, and so on. Uh, and that excited me far more than the history uh, I was studying at the time. Uh, and I, it, it just clicked with me. Um, and as I say, I then did some more reading. C. Wright Mill's Sociological Imagination talks about linking of personal troubles to public issues. Um, so understanding that, that, that what you're experiencing isn't totally inside of you, um, but related to wider forces. I mean, if I can tell you the way I've put it in some of my writings, mm, um, sociology is, is a vulture's eye view of the world, which is a really unfortunate metaphor. <laughs> uh, and I'd like to think of a more cuddly bird. Um, but vultures and uh, certain other birds of prey have uh, this facility to, f to focus on something very small, like a carcass in the case of a vulture or a mouse in the case of a bird of prey. Uh, part of their eye allows them to do that. But at the same time, they can keep in uh, view the wider landscape. Uh, and so that allows them to to pounce, I suppose, uh, but to, to home in on the specific while understanding how it relates to the, the, the wider world. Yeah. And its relevance to education was well summed up by one of my most eminent predecessors as director of the Institute of Education, that's um, Sir, Sir Fred Clark, who said something like, uh, education research and education policy that takes no account of wider social forces will be not only blind, but positively harmful. 
And in a way, that's, that's informed my whole approach. He said that about 70 years ago, but sadly, I'd say it's true today, uh, and, and dare I say, particularly in the field of school improvement, yeah. where social problems are too often misrecognised as educational uh, problems. You know, I got into teaching via Teach First, um, yeah. and there are specific things that you think education may be able to solve when actually it becomes increasingly apparent that it's a societal issue. So can you give an example? Well, I mean, I'll maybe talk a bit more detail about this later, but uh, you know, one, one of the examples I give in one of my books is the um, comment by someone involved with the lit- literacy strategies who said investing that, that amount of money in... Uh, fighting poverty would uh, improve literacy levels far more than just focusing on schools. Now, I think that's an extreme statement, but I think it indicates the way in which people, um, particularly people involved in education, think that education alone can overcome social inequalities. So, in your view, you said that's an extreme statement. How would you temper that statement to kind of get the essence of it, but maybe a bit more... Realistic, I don't want to say realistic, but do you see what I mean? Well, I, I, I would say you actually have to link um, policy uh, in education to wider social policy. Uh, and even under New Labour, which had some rhetoric about that, it, it tended not to happen. It tended to see uh, school policy as some, somehow different from its wider social policy. So do you feel, um, the DfE now is called the DfE, but you know there were previous iterations where it was the um, Department for Children, what was it, DCSF? Children, Schools and Families. And families. So yes. would you say that was a, at least conceptually better because you're starting to think about education and its place in families and what affects children in general? Would you say that was Conceptually, <laughs> yes. Um, but I, I, I was listening to the radio this morning to um, Andrew Adonis talking and it reminded me of his time in that department where he was a very good minister uh, for schools but was quite blinkered in terms of its relationship uh, to the other parts of the department. Um, so conceptually, it was right, but in implementation, I don't think it worked particularly well. Uh, the, the, the ministers were not coordinating, apart from in relation to early years. I'd say that it worked better in early years, but schools policy uh, and its relationship to wider policy um, was sometimes difficult to see. Thank you. Um, so you've had a number of high-profile posts. We're sitting... Uh, in the Institute of Education, where you've um, previously been director for over a decade. Um, what would you say, you know, I, I kind of got a sense of it, but what would you say was an, the overarching thread throughout your career? You know, you started as a teacher, and uh, and most recently you've got a couple of posts um, where once Bar Spa, right? One Bar Spa, once University of Newcastle, Newcastle uh, Australia. in Australia. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was getting confused by the uh, English town. Australian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, what would you say the overarching thread? Well, I suppose it, it started 
from this exposure to sociology. And when I came here as a PGCE student in 1968, I saw how sociology could relate to understanding uh, what I was doing as a teacher. And, and I think being exposed to people like Basil Bernstein, Michael Young, Brian Davis here, uh, made me see that, the, in a sense, the reality of the C. Wright Mills notion, uh, because the sociological perspective I was exposed to here helped me understand why inequality was so entrenched in schools and why it was so difficult to change. And from that, I would say, to specifically answer your question, my the thread running through my career has been exposing and confronting educational disadvantage and the causes of educational disadvantage and building teams of people around me to pursue that agenda. So why in particular educational disadvantage? So, um, we were talking about your undergraduate career that was in Cambridge, not a place known for educational disadvantage so much. So what was it that made you interested in that? Uh, well, one of the things had actually come from before I went to Cambridge. Uh, I'd spent a, 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 just under a year uh, as an unqualified teacher in a, in a primary school uh, in West London. And uh, what that taught me was how it was in a disadvantaged primary school. Uh, it's not disadvantaged now, it's actually quite affluent because of gentrification <laughs> was in Chiswick. Yeah. Um, and, but this particular school uh, had a, a um, large white working class population and was just beginning to have uh, a lot of new Commonwealth immigrants. Uh, and my job actually was to teach English, totally unqualified but to teach English in that context. Um, that gave me insights into how much more difficult it was for people who hadn't had the relatively privileged education that I'd had in another school in the same borough and then in a grammar school in the, in, in the next borough. And so uh, at the age of 18, b before I went to Cambridge, um, I was experiencing the sort of juxtaposition of advantage and disadvantage um, that we've all been seeing on our screens in the aftermath of the Grenfell Towers uh, scandal. Mm. Uh, and so it brought home to me at an early age um, how educational advantage and educational disadvantage were in a dynamic that meant that uh, uh, you, you couldn't tackle one without tackling the other. And so I actually didn't want to go to Cambridge <laughs> After that, they had. To, I I stayed on at the school right up until the day before I had to go to Cambridge, and I was sort of dragged kicking and screaming <laughs> from the school. Uh, and every um, vacation, I went back and, uh, and and taught at the school. Mm. So that that's really where it all started. Um, but then it went through to uh, the things you were you you, you were mentioning, um, or or some of the things you were mentioning, in that. Uh, I pursued this agenda as a teacher in school, as a trainer of social studies teachers at Bath University, mm. which you didn't mention, which was in the um, 1970s, uh, and uh, I led the urban education programme at King's College London in the 1980s. 
and then it became more about building teams when I had institutional leadership uh, um, responsibilities at, uh, first, first of all at Bristol Polytechnic and then uh, here at the Institute of Education. So each of your kind of major career stages you've had influence over a wider range of people um, is that part of why you made those changes or like, tell me how that um, what your thought process was if there was one or if it was just opportunities that came up I'm not someone who planned a career although students who were with me on the PGC course here in 1968 subsequently said of course we always knew you'd be director of the institute yeah. but I think that was hindsight <laughs> rather than anything else um, particularly as I was a pretty um, militant student here and got up the noses of the authorities um, but uh, I, I suppose in some contexts I have been arguing the case for a sociological perspective uh, being in a minority but at places where I was able to build teams uh, I think I was able to to not not only bring in people who had that perspective, but to expose other people to that perspective. So, I mean, at, at Bristol Polytechnic, I think we had a, a fairly cohesive team of people who wanted to pursue a social justice agenda and were quite explicit about it. As you were talking about your kind of sociological awakening, um, and you mentioned some of the kind of founding fathers of sociology, I was wondering... I'm sorry if it seems like a really obvious question, but is socio sociology inherently left-wing? Well, I remember Basil Bernstein addressing that in the first lecture he gave at the uh, Institute in 1968 to the, not his first lecture, but his first lecture to us as PGC students. And he said, um, there are right-wing sociologists but they that have held, held their annual meeting uh, in a telephone box on Clapham Common. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's as true now. I, I think uh, there are there's a much wider range of uh, people who do sociology, some of whom uh, certainly adopt um, what uh, other people would call a neoliberal position. I, I have issues about that. But um, I think there, there is a tendency to look at difference and difference in our society tends to involve inequality. And so uh, I think, the, 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 for me, the more you look at the world, the more uh, injustice you see and the, the more you want your work to do something to expose and hopefully confront that. Mm. Thank you. So in your really interesting, thank you for the copy of your most recent book, by the way. Um, the Fred it's not actually the most recent book. The most recent this, book this, that I have. Knowledge <laughs> and the, the, you're talking about research and policy in education. Yes. Just come out as one called Knowledge and the Study of Education. Um, <laughs> almost most recent book. <laughs> um, and the thing that it's, you mentioned the, the phrase social justice, that for me that's, that, that really came through very, very strongly um, in terms of different essays in it. So 
In the book, you mentioned the shift, and we touched upon Lord Adonis as well and the new Labour government. Um, you mentioned the shift to evidence-based education policy being ushered in by Tony Blair's new Labour government. And can you expand on this? Like, how were things before? Um, well, Michael Barber, who was one of New Labour's leading education gurus and also a professor of education here and before he went into government, uh, wrote about this a few years ago, um, had this sort of typology of the history of education policy, where he said the period in the 1960s and 1970s, which happens to be the period I became a teacher in, um, was a period of uninformed professionalism, where uh, we teachers had licence to do whatever we wanted, uh, but had no systematic knowledge base on which to draw. He then said, when the Thatcher government came in, you had a period of uninformed prescription, where uh, teachers were told what to do, um, but the edicts that government handed down about the national curriculum and so on were equally lacking in a robust evidence base. So not surprisingly, uh, he saw the period of New Labour more positively as one of what he called informed prescription, where the government still handed down policies like the literacy and numeracy strategies, but he argued that those were based on sound evidence of what works. And they had this mantra of what works. Um, but his argument was that once teachers had been exposed to all this evidence, they'd be sort of re-educated. Uh, he, uh, he said you, you'd enter then, uh, once they'd been re-educated, uh, enter a golden age of informed professionalism in which teachers themselves would once again be able to exercise their professional judgment, but this time uh, on the basis of a sound evidence base. And it's obviously a caricature, but I, I think it is the case that um, there's been at least a greater rhetorical emphasis on evidence-informed policy and practice since the 1990s, and it's, the rhetoric has been adopted not only by New Labour, um, but by the subsequent Conservative government, uh, and of course, is also very uh, was very prominent uh, in the Clinton era in in the US, and still is to some extent. Mm. So, would you say that this is a positive thing? I'd say it's positive, but somewhat unrealistic. Uh, I. I'd say not only evidence-based but evidence-informed policy uh, is consistently, if not knowingly, oversold. The reality uh, is that yes, there's been some advances, we have a lot of organisations advocating evidence-based policy in practice, particularly the EEF um, uh, and its toolkit and so on. Uh, and I mean, I'm one of the people I was, I was saying to my doctor only last week, I want to know as much as possible. And I think that's my approach to life, really. So the more evidence that can be brought to bear, the better. But you've also got to be aware of the nature of that evidence, where it's coming from, what interests it serves, uh, and so on. 
and to to, to that extent uh, I think reality is a lot more messy than some of the rhetoric implies. I mean, that, that, can I give you a couple of examples? Yeah, I mean, a, a former permanent secretary at the Department for Education once told me that less than 10% of policy was evidence informed. He said, you've got to understand, Jeff, you know, what you're interested in <laughs> is fine, but in terms of minister's radar, uh, of that 10%, that's evidence-informed, that includes things like what ministers have picked up at their constituency surgery the previous weekend. He was permanent secretary in a government which was very committed to the rhetoric of evidence-informed policy and practice, um, but in practice they don't adhere to it. Um, one I mentioned in, in one of my books, I, I think is classic and it's probably worth spending a little bit of time on, is the new Labour promise in 1997 to reduce class sizes in infant schools. Um, the party promised to reinvest the money it saved from abolishing the assisted places scheme, which was a scheme to get so-called bright working-class kids into private schools, private schools yeah. which I did a study that suggested it didn't actually do that. But anyway, so I was very in favour of new Labour taking the money away from that, and it said... We're going to put it into reducing infant class sizes to below 30. And they presented this as a progressive move that would help disadvantaged kids. But in fact, um, some of us knew that there were very few such classes over 30 in inner city constituencies at the time. The places that had classes over 30 were the leafy suburbs. I was just thinking that, actually, and because I've just looked at some of the data for that fairly recently, and it's, it's true that right. class sizes in London are fairly low. Yeah, uh, and so, you know, when we looked at it, um, lo and behold, the classes over 30 were in the leafy suburbs, which were the swing constituencies, where Labour needed to win votes to win, to win the election. Um, so it was probably electoral logic that drove the policy more than educational logic. Um, because actually the research evidence at the time, anyway, suggested that to give a real advantage to disadvantaged kids, you'd need to reduce class sizes in key stage 1 to 15. And reducing them from 31 to 28 uh, wouldn't do the business. Researchers often assume that once you've got a bit of policy knowledge, uh, government will act on it. But they, they have other imperatives. So I what mean, could the, researchers do? You know, knowing that and knowing, um, you know, you're talking about the vultures eye view of things. Yeah. So it's kind of, if you're focusing on the particular thing you want to get changed, perhaps, or mm. sound, but you're also aware of the wider macro environment. So what could, you know, what would you say to... I don't know, are you early in your career or researchers now about something that they, they're very passionate about, they need to get changed and they want to have the best possible chance of it reaching policymakers and doing something? My period as director of the Institute was, was seen as quite close to, to, to government. Uh, I would say that that's only part of what you have to do. Uh, and in some cases... Uh, government will not respond to evidence at all. Um, I mean, the example I've just given, I think, 
government at least listened. But if you take the more recent example of Theresa May's now abandoned grammar school policy, uh, that played absolutely to a political logic when virtually all the educational evidence uh, that it would help disadvantaged kids was was against it. Um, And so political imperatives trumped educational evidence. So what I argue in the book that you mentioned uh, is that we should be spending as much time uh, out trying to influence the public mind on education as we should be behind closed doors in uh, the Department for Education. Because I think uh, if, if it's actually political logic that drives the policy... Uh, in the democratic society, you, you've got to be out there, as I say, to influence the public mind. Um, we have very few public intellectuals in the area of education. P- people do tend to try and talk to ministers rather than to go out there and uh, influence the wider debate. When you say public intellectuals, are you thinking people like... Um like Simon Sharma for history, that kind of equivalent. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Mean, As you were saying, I was just trying to think. <laughs> yes. Because um, I can think of Marcus de Sotoy, maths. Yeah. Um, David Starkey to some extent, history. Mm. And as you were saying, I was thinking, okay, who's an equivalent person who speaks like that about education? And I, I can't think of one right now. Yeah, I mean, in the present day, I can't think of one. Someone like, not exactly. She's more campaigning, but I was thinking somebody a bit like Fiona Miller. But for a very specific... Yeah, maybe, I mean, she, she plays that role. What, what is interesting is how few education academics play that role. And uh, whereas in history, uh, as you say, uh, Simon Sharma is a serious historian yeah. as well as a, a TV personality. Do you feel that part of that is because, without being rude, that maybe people haven't taken educational academics or that field seriously until fairly recently which seems like an odd thing to say I'd say it's still not taken that seriously there's a lot of unfair criticism of teacher trainers Mm. but they are different from uh, other um, academics and in in many universities, and in some are seen as inferior. I mean, this other book, Knowledge and the Study of Education, that's just come out, partly charts the way in which education as a field of study has low status in many parts of the world. And what's happened, really, uh, in the last 20 years is that governments have often looked to, say, economists to um, get advice on education. Uh, And economists are very good at giving advice on certain parts of education, but they certainly don't have a vultuous eye view of the world. They have a very myopic view of the world, by and large. Yeah, very much so. And obviously a more fiscally driven view of the world because of their discipline. Yeah, yeah. And their their research tends to be quantitative, rather than qualitative and uh, again I I would argue very much you need both to understand the nuances of education. See that's what I was going to ask you about you know we're talking about evidence-based and I guess I wouldn't I'd be a bit remiss if I didn't mention the fact that sometimes people feel that evidence-based in education research is a bit mm, flaky. Yeah yeah well uh, some of it is. Um, (laughs) And I, I, 
made make myself unpopular with colleagues with saying that. On the other hand, uh, as my colleague Andrew Pollard here, who chaired the uh, research assessment, research excellence panel for education, will say actually in terms of its, its standing uh, at the top end, it is as good, if not better, than other subject areas, both nationally and internationally. Um, and indeed, this Institute of Education is rated number one in the world for uh, education. For several years. Yeah. So uh, I think the, the, the top end is as good as anywhere in the world, if not better, and as good as other subjects. I mean, what people forget when they make that argument, particularly those who are arguing we should be more like medicine, if you talk to people in medicine, you've got exactly the same uh, problem and the same tale uh, as exists. And for some reason, medicine tends to be forgiven, but education not. <laughs> what do you feel about, so you know, you talk about at the very highest end, as you say, people sometimes are comparing what they, very poor quality stuff um, against high quality things in other fields and not comparing yeah. like with like. Yeah. How do you, you know, what are your views about the recent driving for, for schools to be become more evidence-informed and some schools are starting to appoint research leads, for example. What's your view about that? Well, I think it's a move that is positive in its intentions, but uh, I don't think its implications have been fully thought, thought through. Uh, I think... The notion that every school could be research-led in that sense uh, is a little bit far-fetched. Uh, and I think, as with teacher training, that it's rather foolish to try and build a whole new infrastructure for educational research when you have got some very high quality uh, work going on in universities. But you would say that, is it? Well, I, <laughs> I, I would say that, but I, as I've said, I've also absolutely uh, take the point that not all of it is. Uh, so I think we have to see this in terms of partnership. Uh, it's quite clear that the government's attempts to move teacher training into the schools uh, is uh, heading for disaster, uh, whereas an approach based on partnership uh, has been shown to be much more successful here and in, in, in other parts of the world. And I would say it's the same about research. Uh, you uh, can certainly have schools developing and defining what they want to research. But with the best will in the world, you are not going to have highly skilled researchers in every school. And therefore, uh, networks and partnerships are the way to go. Coming up in part two of this conversation, which is going to be episode seven of the LKMCO Youth and Education podcast. Policy borrowing is often about borrowing rhetoric rather than detail, uh, and that people use what's happening in one country to legitimate what they, they want to do. Hey people, I love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. 
press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Two, share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.